Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. You know, we're starting a new year. Like, what's the message this morning? Jesus addresses divorce. And so if you're new here and you're probably wondering, like, why in the world did you pick that? So we're at Calvary Chapel, and what we do is just walk book by book, verse by verse, and sometimes it lands really cool, and it's like, oh, what, what, the the text we land on, there's something going on in the world, or even us as a church, and it really resonates, and then other times, I don't know if I would pick divorce (laughs) is the topic of the sermon this morning, and I do want to be very honest, because I see a a few little ones, uh, and and no shame in the game, you're not going to hurt my feelings, we are going to get a little PG-13, okay? Um, uh, in the text, if you read on, you'll hear what a eunuch is, and, and I'm going to talk about that, and that's, it's in Scripture, it's there, and so I never want to say or force your hand as a parent on a conversation that maybe you're waiting to have with your kids, uh, you know, birds, bees, uh, mountains, trees, you know where I'm going with this? Okay, all right, don't ask what mountains, trees are, I was just trying to cover that a little bit for you parents. So you're not getting in the car and be like, what's birds and bees, dad? <laughs> like, that's a question for your mom. <laughs> no, don't do that. Answer it. Okay, that was a joke. But this morning, we're, we're continuing on in our series talking about unexpected and what kingdom living looks like in an earthly reality. And this morning, the disciples are with Jesus and the Pharisees roll up and they got a question and they have no heart to really try to find answers. They only want to trap Jesus and try to trick him and test him. There's no, you know, there's no Pharisee there that has this like really curious, discerning heart of, hey, what is your stance on this? Because I want to, I want to be able to make sure my life aligns with the teaching of the Messiah. So that's not even happening, um, but it's still good to hear. Even in those moments, when Jesus is being tested, he stands for the truth and he's using that as an opportunity to show what kingdom living looks like. And so our world is the exact same way. And we're gonna, we're gonna hit on some very hot topics that were in Jesus's day and it's still for us today. That us as uh, people trying to follow Jesus, we get thrown those questions. So what do you believe marriage is? Or how many genders do you think there are? And can somebody pick and choose? And is it subjective or is it objective truth? Is there absolute moral? And so it's the same way that those are going to be thrown at. And a lot of times when I've had to field questions like that, nobody's really curious and wondering. They just really want to hear what the bald pastor is going to say. And no matter what you say, it's probably not going to be the right thing. And that's all right. But as long as we stand firm and set our lives on this It's all we have to worry about. And so a lot of times I tell them, this isn't Nick's opinion. I'm just going with the guy that walked out of the tomb on this one, you know. So if there's somebody greater that has shed some light on some of these topics, I'm all ears. But so far, I'm going with the guy that walked out of the tomb on this one. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Uh, just a little side note, this is Jesus walking. He's, he's making his way to Jerusalem, and we're only a couple chapters away from the triumphal entry. We're getting ready to start the last week of Jesus's life. And in Luke, I love the verse that, or how Luke writes it. It's like Jesus put his eyes on Jerusalem and there was nothing that was gonna deter him off of that because he knew he had to go to Jerusalem to be in obedience to the Father's will and going to the cross. And so he's leaving. We're starting that journey on the way to Jerusalem to start the last week of his life, verse three. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I bet a lot of ears perked up. What's Jesus going to say here? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, not live in the basement, get a job and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
Now, no elbowing people next to you, okay? We're, we're reading this for ourselves, not to, you know, for someone else. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. There, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive this. Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So again, the Pharisees, they could care less about what Jesus really believes about divorce. They're only wanting to trap him. And, and we have to understand the cultural setting of the day. See, the Jews back in the day, they, they didn't teach with, with much authority. That's what set Jesus apart so much. See, a Jew would teach, or a scribe, a Pharisee, they would always reference somebody else. Well, Landon says this, and this is how it is. And, oh, no, no, but, you know, the good Rabbi Jeff said this. And they would always kind of push the blame on somebody else. They would never say, this is what I think. And so when Jesus rolls up on the scene and he says, I tell you, I know what you've heard, but I tell you, like just that format of teaching was drastically different. And so in this context, there was two main rabbis that the Jews kind of always leaned on to understand, you know, some of this law. And just like any good uh, kind of group of people, there's always going to be split into two. You're going to have a conservative side, you're going to have a liberal side, and we know nothing about that and our country and our culture do because we all just get along and we all agree so try to try to understand I know it's going to be hard you know a whole group of people believing differently than you and so I'm not even going to try to pronounce their names uh, one looks like Shamu and I know it's not pronounced that way but that's what it makes me think of and another guy named Hillel whatever but one was very conservative and he had a very strict view in regard to divorce and he would say sexual immorality only. That is the only reason that you can divorce your wife. And another, this Hillel guy, he had more of a liberal view, very laxed in regards to the law. And he said, you know, for any reason. For any reason. And, and if you had to guess, just sitting here right now, which one do you think was the popular view in Jesus' day? Any reason whatsoever. Your wife burns the toast out the door. If your drink at supper's not cold enough, kick her to the curb. Any reason whatsoever. If she's just not that pretty and you found a prettier girl, that's an unfit wife. Get rid of her. And so, obviously, you're going to take this lax interpretation of the law, and then you're going to, you know, kind of put it through your framework and maybe make a few little changes in how we work this. And what was happening in the day is... As guys got older and their wives got older, they wanted to trade up. So they, hey, I got a 40-year-old here. I might see if I can get two 20s. And this was a common practice where you had, again, multiple wives, and they were always trying to trade them up. That was very normal in the Greek culture even. A, a Greek man would have three wives, and I'm not going to discuss what each purpose of one was for. But they did have different roles. So this is the normal cultural setting in which Jesus lived. Do you think we can relate? Absolutely. They're trying to define marriage back here, and we're trying to define marriage the exact same way today. And so they're asking Jesus this question because they want to know, where are you going to line up on this? And do we not get the same question for us 
in our culture? Are we going to take a, is Jesus going to take a, 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 the law serious or is he going to be real laxed with it? You know, is he, because the difference is either you're going to hold to the law and become very unpopular with people or you're going to dismiss the law and everybody's going to love you. I could probably pause and talk about celebrity pastors and their ability to hold fast to the word and their popularity. And just for me, I see those two things go together, that either we can hold fast to the word or I can be popular. I say we hold fast to the word. And so even for us today, not just in pastors, but us, are we going to hold, are we going to take the word of God serious and run the risk of becoming unpopular with people, or are we going to be lax on the word? Do we want to risk unpopularity with people, or do you want to risk it all? Because if we don't have the word, I have no other way that God has revealed himself about salvation. Yeah, there's general revelation. You, know, you can look at the mountains and the trees. You can see that creation does point to God. There is a certain level of God revealing himself just in what can be seen. We can see that in morality. We can see that in a moral law that is written on our human hearts. There, there's a certain level of God. But without this, I have never heard, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that if we would just believe in him, we're not going to perish but we're going to have eternal life. So either we hold fast to the word or we risk it all. And when you hold that into the balance, when I look at the little bit that I have left in my life, and I tell my wife all the time, I got a good 10 years left in me, and I've been saying it for seven, right? I even have my funeral songs picked out. She's like, what do you care? You're not even going to be there. I said, I will haunt you. I don't believe in it theologically, but I will do something, woman. <laughs> Let one day of my life be about me, okay? One day. No, not even in my death. But are we going to hold fast to the word the few short years that we do have here? James says our life is but a mist. Do we want to hold fast to the word or do we want to risk eternity? When I put it through that lens, I say we hold fast to the word. And so the Pharisees, they wanted to talk about divorce. Say, so is it lawful for this to happen? And I love what Jesus does. It's almost like he engages in the conversation, but he doesn't. Because how could you talk about divorce if we don't try to define marriage well? See, the Pharisees want to talk about divorce. Jesus, he goes, let's talk about something greater. Let's talk about marriage. And so the Pharisees, they go to the Mosaic law. Well, Moses gave you a certificate of divorce. Why did that happen? And you know they said it with that little just, you know, you're just poking and just trying to egg Jesus on and get him riled up. They didn't say it. You know, they were just being like a little brother. Yeah, I'm not touching you. That's just how I see the Pharisees. Maybe that's in my own mind. But they didn't want to talk about marriage, but Jesus moves it to that. They bring up the Mosaic law, but Jesus, he goes to the garden. He goes, let me tell you how it was from the very beginning. Let me tell you how it was before sin entered the world. That's where we should get our definition of what marriage is about. And I love in these verses where it says, verse 4, it says, He who created them, male and female. What do you think Jesus' view on gender fluidity is today? Male and female. Now, if somebody is struggling with that, does that mean they're any less human? Not at all. If somebody's struggling with a gender identity, does that mean that we're going to kick them out, that we're not going to welcome? Not at all. I hope our church would be full of people that are struggling in their identity, and they would find hope and grace and love and truth in Jesus Christ, just like the rest of us that are struggling with our identity. Might not be in a gender fluidity context, but I struggle with my identity. And I love that the church is open and it welcomes me in. And it says, you know what? Find a home here and find a family that we could walk this together. And so God created and then he joined together. You know, when we 
when, when we do a wedding, we always pray at the very beginning to say, you know what, God, I think you should be invited in to the very thing that you created. This isn't something that we do, but it's something that God is doing in and through us. And I still believe uh, the marriage uh, is one of the greatest analogies of God's love for us. Christ loved us, gave himself up. Just Christ loved the church just like a husband loves his wife. And our marriages are a testimony, is almost an evangelistic tool for people to understand Christ in the church. That's how important it is. It's not just a piece of paper. I hate that saying. Money's a piece of paper. It doesn't mean I don't go to work. But there's something more valuable than anything that could be written on parchment. It's a joining together that God is doing. And so God created, and he joined together, male and female. And so what we see is there's absolutely different roles in marriage. There's different roles in gender, and that's okay. I mean, go back to Genesis, and you're going to see different times of creation. He didn't make Adam and Eve back-to-back right at the same time. There was a time Adam was alone, and it was not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for me to be alone. After about two or three days, it sounds good the first day. I can watch whatever movie, I can eat whatever I want, I don't have to hear, hey, you know, that's going to clog your heart, right? I just enjoy that McRib in peace. But after a couple days, there's no cheeseburger, there's no McRib that could fill a void that is left by the absence of my wife. It's not good for us to be alone. And so God saw that where there was only Adam and there was no compatible fit Don't make me draw a picture. There was no compatible fit for Adam in all of creation. It wasn't good for him to be alone. And guess who was with Adam? God. That hits deep for me. That Adam was with God and God says, it's not complete yet. It's not done. So there's absolutely different roles in marriage, but there's equal dignity. There's equal value. There is absolutely different roles. And there is no, if I step on some toes, love you, mean it. This whole feminist movement that women want to be as good as men, I don't know if anybody's told you, ladies, I think you're greater. If you want to try to be like men, you have to lessen yourself to be a man or to have the same dignity as us. So for a woman to want this, now get into the whole equal pay and all of that stuff, but just in sheer value, I think women are greater. Maybe I have a little predisposition towards that and I like my wife, and, but there's absolutely different roles but equal dignity, and that is good. So even in our parenting, it is good for my kids to deal with this mean cuss of a dad, and I tell them all the time, I'm not playing favorites. I'm a mean cuss to all four of you. And it's good to have that hard discipline. Maybe uh, it's a struggle with me and, and expressing my emotions. That's okay. I make a horrible mother. I really do. They've even said that a couple times. Yeah, it's just easier to talk to mom. I bet it is. She's a woman. <laughs> They're always easier to talk to. She'll tell you something in 50,000 words, which all I need, two. That's all I need. And it communicates everything that I need to communicate. I make a horrible mother. I think I make an okay dad. And just like my wife, she makes a horrible father. Horrible. I wouldn't be married to her if she was a really good father. That would be awkward. But she makes a beautiful mother. And for our kids to have both to see that, and the only thing I want to throw out there is as a kid that biological at the times was a little stress and a little different in my life, people that I looked up to as a mother and a father were not biological. And so if you're 80 or if you don't have kids, I promise you there's some young people that need to learn what it means to be a man, that need a dad in their life. There's some young ladies that need to understand what it means to be a, understand biblical womanhood. 
they might not be your biological children. And so love on them. I think Paul talks about that in one of his epistles. You know, younger men look up to the older ones. Younger women look up to the older. And older women, this is you lead them. Older men lead us. You know, that's, I think, one of the greatest things I love about the board that we have here. Only one of them, yeah, only one of them is not uh, older than me. And the rest of them, I'm going to be polite boys, are a little seasoned. And I don't have all the answers. Uh, about every big decision, I'm calling somebody. I didn't even unilaterally make the decision to cancel first service. I called on somebody that's a little more seasoned in the understanding of transportation and safety. Hey, what would you do in this? Because I understand, I'm a young man. I need older guys that have been walking with the Lord a little bit longer, that are a little bit more mature in their walk. I, I need that influence in my life. The only thing I'm wondering is like, okay, who, who's there for Donald P? Who's the guy a couple more years, a little more mature, a little bit longer than... And so we have equal dignity, equal value, but yes, absolutely different roles. And so they're asking, so, so why did Moses give a certificate of divorce then? You know, if you're saying that it, it was never like this, God created male and female, why, why do we have divorce? Why did that happen in verse A, hardness of heart? It is because your hardness of heart, it is because you don't want to follow the Lord in his will, his design, his setup for what marriage is supposed to be. That if you wouldn't harden your heart to God, maybe that wouldn't be a path you have to take. And I understand what I'm saying. In a, in a church like this, in a group and whoever's watching online, I know absolutely divorce has plagued us. And I never want to take it lightly, but I'm not going to be lax on it either. And that's a hard statement because I know there's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of past struggle through just that one word, divorce. That some of us hear that and might not even be in our own uh, past marriages, but even as a kid. Even as a student, watching parents get divorced or good friends, there, there's a, or your parents and you're seeing your adult children go through something like this. This is a hard topic. But again, the Pharisees, they're not asking for insight. They just want to trap Jesus whatsoever. And so he just flat out kind of hits them with it. It's because of hardness of heart. See, the issue wasn't Moses's law, but it was their failure to follow God and his design for marriage. And what I do want to say, verse 9 really hits it for us. It, Jesus does have an exception. Paul gives another one in one of the uh, epistles to the, Corinth, the church in Corinth. Divorce is not required or even encouraged in whatever situation. Let it be infidelity or whatever is going on. You know, so some people ask, well, what about in situations of abuse? Now, I do believe in a legal separation. I, I, I don't think uh, there is a lot of bad counseling that has happened in the history of the church, in, in the modern church, where, uh, again, I'll be the first to say, us pastors are not very highly trained in counseling. And there's been a lot of bad advice where a wife would come to the pastor and say, my husband is physically, verbally, and whatever else abusive, what should I do? Go back and submit to him. That's the worst advice you could ever give. And I will never give that advice. Now, am I going to run straight to the word divorce? No, but I do think there might be a separation. Because again, in a, you know, this is a side note, but I'm, I'm getting warmed up here. When abuse happens like that, and I know it can go either way, but I'm just going to pick on us guys, because that's what I had to endure as a child. The abuser flourishes when it's silent and when it's hidden. When you bring it into the light, especially in the church, where we can walk in and act like everything is perfectly fine and, oh, we're too blessed to be depressed, but we know, you know, we go home and then there's husband and wife and they're fighting and there is abuse in that. If you bring it to light, there's healing in that. That's going to create change in us because the abuser, they flourish when it's hidden like that. And that's really hard. Now, everybody in the church is going to know what's going on in our life. Yeah. Do you not remember what we talked about? Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, take two. If that doesn't work, bring them to the church. 
that we would take spiritual discipline serious here because any sin flourishes in the darkness. But when you bring it into the light, there's healing in that. And the healing might need to be that the abuser gets caught because you can't hide it then. You, you know, hey, well, you guys are getting a, a separation. What's going on? And now they have to answer for that. Those are real struggles that happen in churches and, and hearing, uh, I feel like us pastors are doing a better job of how do we engage uh, these kind of topics and, and thank the Lord that we have people that are professional biblical counselors to help us navigate waters like that. But again, it's never required, it's not even encouraged, it's only permitted. It's almost like a last ditch effort. Do everything that you can. And I even heard one pastor, he's like, divorce, legal separation. The spouse doesn't want to change their behavior. And he talked about a lot of different behaviors of what could cause a separation in that. Divorce, you can always get remarried again. I was like, man. But he goes, I'm sick of seeing my congregation, you know, with these hidden sins and that's where it's flourishing. Bring it into the light. And so again, divorce, not required, not encouraged, only permitted, not commanded. I love stories where you hear a husband and a wife and, and, and whatever the issue, let it be infidelity, let it be abuse, whatever it's going to be. And you see the grace of God move in their life and in their marriage. I think it's one of the most beautiful things. You're thinking, that's some weird faith, Nick. I don't know what you're about. There's an Old Testament book I would love for you to read then with a guy named Hosea. And a prophet of the Lord. And what's God tell him? Go and marry the prostitute. And she's going to stack up multiple infidelity issues. And obviously that's a signal of he was showing Israel being that. And, and, and God is the faithful husband. But we're all the adulterer in our relationship with Jesus. But it shows the grace that he is a prophet of God accepted her back. And that's all of us, that God is that faithful husband willing to accept us back. But it is a beautiful expression of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And is it difficult? Absolutely it's difficult. This is not an easy road. This isn't just like, oh, we go to church, everything's going to be fine, and we just need to pray a little prayer. No, this is going to be months of restoration and reconciliation. This is going to be a journey. But isn't that the ministry that we're called to? Isn't that what Paul says? Is it 2 Corinthians that we're called to the ministry of reconciliation? Isn't that the, an opportunity for us to speak the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus? And so in those situations, we're not requiring it, we're not encouraging it, but we're encouraging the grace of Jesus. So Jesus desires to see unexpected commitments in our marriages. So we're talking about what is this unexpected kingdom living, unexpected commitment. Marriage is hard. It's one of the hardest things that you will ever go through. When I do premarital counseling or if I counsel somebody that's talking about maybe going into ministry, I tell them flat out, I'm going to try to talk you out of it. And I looked at, uh, we had a former student, we just saw her this weekend, and she said, oh, I got engaged. I said, oh, do you really want to marry him? She kind of looked stunned and looked at me like, how dare would you ask that? And I said, because if I can talk you out of it, I should. If little old me can talk you out of marriage, I should. Because that will avoid a bigger pain and hurt later down the road. Same thing in ministry. If I can talk you out of it, I should. But in our marriages, we are called to unexpected commitment. So again, in the culture that Jesus is speaking to, we're not trading up our older wife for a younger, younger model. You might do that with your Ford truck, but you're not doing it with your wife. And wives, you're not doing that with your husband either, okay? I know we're no uh, prize at times. Every, every morning I wake up, I'm getting ready. I look in the mirror and I look at Ash and I said, honey, this is the best it's getting. Like this is it, it is all downhill from here. She's like, what do you mean downhill? We're halfway down that hill. We're, you act like we're at the top of the hill and just teetering. Nope, we're full speed ahead. But is there unexpected commitment in your marriage? One of the 
coolest things. I have a good friend who was a youth pastor as I was a youth pastor at the same time. We lived about an hour apart and we would get together, you know, once a month and just encourage one another. And I was over there at his church and his senior pastor walks in and I got to know him and he, he just kind of cut through all the formalities of, hey, how you doing? How's everything going? He, hey, how's your walk? Are you walking with Jesus? And the next question, how's your marriage? Are you leading your family well? Are you loving your wife? But it was refreshing. And that's how we need to be as a family of faith. How's your marriage? I'm being dead serious. How's your marriage? Does it need help? Find help. That's okay. It's okay. We're all dirty, rotten, broken, dealing with past stuff, dealing with stuff that we're currently, like, it's going to be hard. But that spouse that you're sitting next to, or maybe they're home because they didn't want to endure the crazy cold, they're worth it. They're worth it. And if we would just surrender and submit our lives to Jesus and even in our marriages, he wants to see unexpected commitment. And then starting in verse 10, this is where it's going to get real crazy. The disciples are like, well, if such is the case, maybe it's better that we don't even marry. <laughs> like, that's a whole lot of crazy going on right there. I could avoid that and just bachelor pad this thing for the rest of my life. And there's times, thinking, Lord, really? I, I I could get kind of used to this when the Ashley and the kids are away and it's just me and, you know, I don't have to get yelled at if my cereal bowl's left out. And I don't get yelled at if my socks are on the floor. They can just lay right there because that's where I put them. That's where I want them right there. It's kind of thinking, maybe it is. I, I hear that's my life verse sometimes right there. Well, if such is the case, maybe it's better. She's helping in Cal Kids, so I can say whatever I want. She'll slap me later. It's okay because some of you guys will rat me out. I'd know it. You'll be texting her. And Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying. That's a hard statement. This is a hard statement. And he, and he talks about these eunuchs. And, and again, uh, people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were made eunuchs. Most likely Joseph, definitely Potiphar, you know, talking Old Testament, though they were most likely eunuchs. Anytime you're in a royal courthood to keep you from having to uh, be tempted with any uh, temptation around the queen and her daughters or whatever, uh, they would remove all temptation. And I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> They're going to remove the ability to be tempted in that. And that, uh, again, common practice in the Old Testament in those days, uh, highly do not recommend that today. If you're struggling with any kind of sexual temptation, I wouldn't say that's a, uh, a proper, you know, I know there's that verse, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's, but no, 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 that's not, what we're, that's not what we're talking about there. Like, get away from that. <laughs> Wrong interpretation. But there's some from birth. And I don't think it's just a physical change. I think even um, for somebody to desire, you know, Marriage, by definition, is between a man and a woman, not because I say it, because that's how God has defined it, right? If somebody does not want to enter into that marriage, that's okay. They don't have to. But what we're not going to do is redefine marriage, because that's not really a marriage. You know, now we, there, the whole, like, homosexuality marriage thing, and now even the slippery slope that we're on is uh, thruples, where there's maybe three people that want to get married together or maybe a, a polyquad, if you've ever heard of that term, where it's two couples and they're all coupled and it's, it's getting really weird. And just uh, to give a fair warning of why that is so important, you know who is trying to ride the coattails of the legal homosexual marriage decisions that our court has made? Pedophiles. That they're already petitioning in jail, saying, if this person wants to be married to that person, and that's a natural desire, and you see that, it is not my fault that I'm naturally desiring a child. And I will telling you now, they're actually gaining ground. And they're doing studies to say, is it really that detrimental to a child to endure that style of abuse? That's the world we live in. And so there are some from birth, I think that does articulate some people that would have a, a homosexual tendency. Again, the, the desire is not the sin, it is acting upon it. Scripture is very clear on that. So I think there are some from birth, I think that includes that. Some are made by men, talk about those guys from the Old Testament, and some made themselves. And just to be clear, not talking about 
cutting off your right arm causes you to sin, but some that would say, I'm gonna live in singleness. Instead of engaging into marriage, I'm gonna live in singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. And again, I don't think the church has done great historically. Um, I remember one service when I was a little kid, they brought all the little kids up, they showed a picture of a, a typical family, father, uh, mom, two kids, typical American you know, uh, family, and we prayed over them that they would all find their spouse. But what if God has a life of singleness for them? You know, some of the disciples were single. I, I believe Paul was a single guy. Like, uh, and again, marriage or singleness isn't commanded in Scripture. It, it, this means if you are married, this is how we're going to act as a husband and a father. Even, even having kids isn't commanded in there. Now we have those Old Testament verses talk about, you know, our, our quill full of arrows is da-da-da, wonderful, and absolutely all my kids are a blessing. But it's not commanded you know, that whole be fruitful, multiply, that's, don't take that so literal there. Like, all right, we got to overpopulate this place. Let's go. That's how we're going to win the kingdom. We're going to convert people and we're going to create people to be Christians. You know. But even in our singleness, Jesus desires to see unexpected commitment even in our singleness. So we're all in the same boat. You married? Great. Be committed to kingdom living. Are you single? Be committed to kingdom living. Living. Is it going to be harder at times? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Is it hard to be married at times? Absolutely it is. But I never want to look at somebody that maybe isn't married and, and give that, well, what's wrong with you? And I know we just got through the holidays and some of you single ones, you know, went off and saw your parents and like, oh, when are you going to get married? Wow, thanks. I'm not good enough by myself that I got to find some dumb spouse to bring along to Christmas so you feel good about yourself. And, and we do the same thing with kids too. When are you guys going to have kids? I know as we get older, we're going to be excited to be grandparents, but understand the pressure that we put on our families when we say words like that. Like infertility is a real hard struggle for some people. And when we have to walk into Christmas, like now there's little Instagram reels that are talking about that. It's like on our way to Christmas and I had to be, I'm gonna be asked nine times when I'm gonna get married or when are we gonna have kids. It's almost kind of like saying when we look out into the audience, you know, obviously the, uh, we got some empty seats and not everybody is here because of the weather. You know, I would never wanna walk up and I, I tried to do a great point at this when I was a student pastor and be like, hey, where's everybody at? Where's everybody at? Because what I just told you is you're here but that's not good enough. So even if four of you showed up, man, I'm so glad that four of you guys showed up. Here we are. But I'll never say, hey, where's everybody at? Because it's almost devaluing your presence. And sometimes we do the exact same thing to those that are in a season of singleness. And it might not even be out of a desire. I think there are some great people that are living single lives that would love to engage in a, a biblical marriage that would have a spouse and they're but I would rather them hold fast to the word and not lower their standards, which I'm sorry, in this world, it's probably gonna take a little longer to find a spouse. Unless we call the Amish. I mean, they just kind of set it up on their own and actually, I'm not fully arranged marriages, but I think parents should be involved a little bit, just, just a little bit. If one of my daughters brings some schmuck of a guy home and I've never met him and she's got a ring on her finger, it's going to be a hard conversation at the Pierce household right there. Slightly want to be just a little bit involved in that decision. But Jesus desires unexpected commitment, even in our singleness. And related, side note, a little, little geeking out here. Our world has always had an overfocus on sex. And in these passages, we're talking about marriage, we're talking about singleness, we're talking about all that. It's always been that way. I don't think the world's getting more sexualized. I think we're just figuring out ways that we can sin with that. I forget who said it, but anytime man creates something, the two things we try to figure out is how do we make money and how do we have sex with it? Well, alrighty then. But look at our world. Look at a uh, wonderful tool of communication. Somebody's actually texting me. Wonderful tool of communication. I've started my, I, I'm trying to do this, uh, a yearly Bible reading plan. There's so many resources out there. Please join me in one of those. 
a wonderful tool of communication, wonderful tool to, to read the gospel and to read the word and to be poured into on that, but also a horrible tool that destroys marriages, that destroys lives because of the easy access of pornography. You know, when I was a kid and before internet existed, you needed like a whole team. You got to get all your buddies together like it was Ocean's Eleven. You know, you had the plan. I'm like, all right, Johnny's house. We know his dad has a couple magazines. This is what we're going to do. You're going to distract mom. You're going to tunnel under. Like it was a project. Now it finds you. You're not even trying and it finds you. And so our world has always had an overfocus on sex. But what I do want to say is the devil didn't create sex. God did. And what I never want, and this is a real struggle, even I, people that I know, that the church did not do a good job talking about sex and the biblical understanding of what sex is. And then when they go off and they get married, their marriage night is supposed to be a joyous occasion they're left in tears because they're broken because they feel ashamed. Even though they, in their singleness, did everything God's way and they held fast to their purity, but in over guilt and an over shame of what sex is and it's ruining marriages. I think the church should be the leader in talking about what sex is. Hence, we're having a marriage night coming up in February this next year. Guess what's on the topic? Godly sex. We want to teach our kids what true sex is, what godly sex is, we, to understand it in God's, everything else in their lives, we want to teach them what God's standard and God's will is and God's parameters for it. Why not that? Don't be silent. Is it going to be awkward? Absolutely. Ask my son. He's sitting on the back row and I got a daughter right there. And they're sitting here counting the number of times their dad is saying sex in a sermon. Some of you are counting it too and I'm probably going to get an email. Bring it on. I used to even, I teach my kids even the slang terms because I never wanted them with a group of friends or on the bus and they would hear something and be like, what's that? And get made fun of. And as a pediatric nurse, use the proper terms for body parts with your children, please. A lot of abuse goes under notice because we use these slang terms for body parts and that's the only thing that kids know how to articulate. I could give you story upon story teach your kids about sex. It's okay. Devil didn't create it. God did. The devil only perverts it. But if it is God's gift of marriage, who got a really cool Christmas present this year? Did you tell anybody? Did you get this present? Be like, I can't tell anybody. I can't talk about it. I'd be too ashamed. This is God's gift to marriage. Now, I'm not saying we have to be crude about it, but shouldn't the church talk about what it truly is? Now, I'm not going to draw pictures and diagrams, but we need to understand life God's way. And if in the marriage and even in our singleness, we are sexual beings by creation. God created them male and female. We're all adults here. How do you think we can tell the difference between the two? Because we're sexual beings. The devil didn't create it. He only perverts it. In sin, it caused Adam and Eve to see each other differently. When they were in the garden and sin hit, they saw each other and they were naked and they were afraid. That was never God's design for it. And they ran and they hid themselves. And it still plagues us today. This is not how God designed any of this. God has blessings that the world and that the devil, the enemy, cannot produce for us. But we got to do it God's way. Even in our marriages, in our singleness, we're called to live a life of purity. And it might be awkward. You want to get real honest? Me and my wife lived together before we were married. And our first day of premarital counseling, because we wanted to get married, we both became saved. We stopped having sex that day. Still lived together. We had a child together. And we thought, well, it's probably not that big of a deal, but if we're really going to try to live God's way, and this is when we gave our life to the Lord, regardless of all the past, if this pastor's true, saying that my past is washed away by the blood of Jesus, I'm going to live my life now and every day forward for Christ and surrender and submit to his will. And if that only means five months of purity, that's what I'm going to try to do. And we looked at our pastor and we said, that's probably not a big deal. And he said, this is an awesome deal that no matter what, no matter how long that you want to live 
your life God's way. Because again, that purity wasn't just for five months. We're still on that journey to live a pure life before the Lord. So in our marriages, in our singleness, we're all called to live a life of purity. In God's way, it works. It was one of the biggest blessings of our marriage that we held fast to that commitment. And we stood on our little wedding day up there at the church and we're holding each other's hands and we're both smiling. And you wonder why? <laughs> what do you think the I do's mean? I do you, you do me. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Definitely getting an email on that one. <laughs> God's way works. But even from this pastor that went too far in past relationships... There's grace and there's forgiveness in it. And today is a beautiful day in this new year to live your life God's way. Is it going to be hard? Absolutely. It's going to be very difficult. Very difficult. We would come home. We would see each other. We'd have to go to bed. And it was like, don't, don't touch me, woman. Like, you stay on your side of the bed. You stay on this side. Like, a foot accidentally touches my foot. It's like, nope, I'm out sleeping on the couch. Let's go. It's very difficult. But God is worth it. And then verses 13 to 15, why in the world after all this discussion of marriage and divorce and sex and celibacy and eunuchs, and I don't even know what a eunuch is anymore, we're given a few small verses about Jesus and him blessing and praying for kids. Like, Matthew, what in the world were you writing about? Like, did you lose track and be like, where was I again? Oh, yeah, okay, let's just throw these verses in here. You know, the other, the other gospels had them in there. I got to fit them in there somewhere. And so these parents were bringing their children to Jesus and they wanted him to lay hands on and pray and the disciples were rebuking. Why is that right there? For me, I think there's, it communicates that there's something greater here than all of that. In our world, sex has absolutely become an idol and a God. And I've had conversations with my homosexual friends and I've had conversations with my heterosexual friends. Your sexuality is your God. That's what you worship. That's what you've placed on a pedestal. That's what sits on the throne of your heart. That's all you think about, and that's all you want to do is how to suffice those desires. In the context of marriage, outside of the context of marriage, that has become your God. But then there's little kids. I think their presence shows us that there's something greater than sex and marriage and celibacy and all that. Yes, we're giving clear directions of, of how we are to behave in, in whatever season of life we're in, married, single, whatever. But kingdom living is greater than all of that. I remember being a young kid, and I have to go way back young because I was exposed to pornography by fourth grade, and it absolutely brought on an addiction that I struggled with all the way up until the early years of my marriage. That was a hard thing to admit to your wife and to your spouse. And it's a hard thing to admit to your son and your daughter and you want to fight because you don't want them to experience the things that I had to. And if I could go back, and for some of us, we don't have to go back very far and bless the Lord. I have to go clear back to third, second, third grade when I didn't even know really what sex was and I wasn't concerned about it and that dragon of sexual desire was not awakened and there was an innocence in my life. I think Jesus sees these kids and it's like, for such is the kingdom as that. Don't make sex your God. There's something greater here. There's something greater here than that. Yes, are we sexual beings? Yes, but God desires unexpected commitment in our kingdom living. And there's going to be seasons, whether we're married or not married, sickness and health, there's going to be seasons of sexual activity, no sexual activity, but don't let that become your God. Hold fast to that purity. Hold fast to an innocence like this child. It's the second time Jesus has used children as an analogy to what the kingdom of heaven belongs to. First, he talked about their humility. You know, they were the lowest on the social totem pole of the day. And I think even here, live and fight against that desire to make that your God or make that your idol. 
for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus desires unexpected commitment even in our kingdom living and whatever that means. These are hard words. And no matter what season we're in of singleness, marriage, divorce, uh, addiction, don't read the words for someone else trying to nudge. Read the words as a mirror and look at your own life. Are you living a life of purity? Are you living a life holding fast to the word of God? Are you doing your life God's way? Not just in sexual desire and marriage, but in every area. Do we have unexpected commitment in our kingdom living? Father, we love you, we trust you, and we just surrender and submit to you. And I know there's a lot of heavy hearts in this room, a lot of heavy hearts that might be watching online because of pain in our past, maybe even our current realities. But Lord, we know your grace is more than sufficient, that your presence is what we need. And so whatever struggle, whatever brokenness that we have, Lord, we surrender and submit to you and we ask that you would give us a faith and a boldness and a courage that we would live for you and whatever that would be. So for married, I, I pray that we would lead uh, in our marriage as well, that they would be an articulation of your grace and your mercy, that if we're uh, parents, that we would lead our children in understanding your ways in every aspect of our lives. If it's in our singleness, Lord, the exact same that people would see us and see our commitment to you and to your word and to your will in our lives. They, they would see simple trust and obedience from us, Lord. So we surrender. We submit again to you. We ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that there would begin even this day a revival, not just in our church, in our community that when people would see us, this ragtag group that we call Calvary Lake Ozark, they would see you, Lord. Give us that kind of faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, Merry Christmas. Hope you guys had a great new year. See you next week again, Vision Sunday. Excited. Thank you, guys.